Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. My guest today is perhaps best known for playing the compassionate, the kind, the forgiving Dr. Olivia Barber Hastings for almost 20 years on The Young and the Restless. But Tanya Williams joins me today to talk about something else, the 20th anniversary of Real World, the festival she founded. It is the oldest and largest national platform dedicated to changing the face of the media landscape by empowering and showcasing Canadians identifying as Black, Indigenous, Asian, South Asian, Middle Eastern, and Latinx in the Canadian screen-based production industries. Missing this year, though, are the parties and the galas as the Real World Film Festival has adapted to the pandemic and moved online. Find out more about the festival, which runs from October 14th to 19th at realworld.ca. And while you're there, why not check out accessrealworld.ca. It's the largest national database for Canadian Black, Indigenous, and people of colour in the creative industries. In this wide-ranging interview, we talk about one of her first jobs, doing a TV milk commercial and the controversy that went on behind the scenes. We talk about what struggles she had trying to find work as a Black actress, and of course, how the Real World Film Festival has adapted to the pandemic. With more on the festival, Tanya Williams joins me from her home in Los Angeles. And I started by congratulating her on 20 years of the Real World Film Festival. I can't believe it. I, can't, I really sometimes can't believe it other than the fact that I know I'm 20 years older. <laughs> That's how I know. <laughs> well, let's go back uh, to the beginning of your career. Um, I've been doing some research about you, and I've been reading that you were often the only person of color in front of or behind the camera on a lot of the early work that you did. What impact did that have on you at that time? Um, you know, it's so funny that that's going back to the late 70s now. So you have to almost, you know, someone has to be that old to imagine you almost saw no diversity on television at all. You certainly didn't see it in uh, movie theaters. But you, you know what made me a little comfortable is the fact that my whole life I've always been the only black person. I was pretty much, I went to private schools in England. I was the only black person in most of my classes. Um, everywhere I traveled, I was the only black person. I also took classical piano and in concerts, I'd be the only black person. So by the time I'm 17 years old, that was a norm um, for me. I thought, I, I, in fact, what would be shocking is if I saw another black or brown person. Mm. I, would, I would beeline across the room just to meet them because it was such a rarity that I saw that. Um, but it, 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 it also just, um, you know, what it leaves you with, even as a kid, even then, it's that somehow you're not relevant. Somehow you don't matter. Um, I certainly never saw anything on TV growing up that looked like my family, like my father was a barrister and then a judge, my mother a nurse, I was an only child. I lived in a fairly nice neighborhood. I didn't see stories or images that reflected that. There were usually stories that I was embarrassed that my friends would see that and assume my life was that. Well, one of your early jobs was a TV milk commercial for the Wear a Milk Mustache campaign, which I think we probably all remember, certainly, uh, I do. And it must have been exciting to get that gig, but there was some controversy about the hiring of you yes. for that for that job, wasn't there? Yeah, I didn't know at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but years later, one of the producers had said, and this is not a negative thing on the milk board, it was everybody at the time, because no one was even hiring black people. 
but he told me that they actually had to have a you know a sit down conversation and the milk board just wondered um how did it look to have the white milk against you know brown skin you know is it a positive thing is it a negative i mean they had to have these conversations and i can guarantee at that time every ad agency had those kind of conversations. I mean, I don't think that would have been unusual and they might be having them today. I'm honestly to say that, you know, in 2020, I bet those conversations are still ha ha are happening because even though we talk about diversity and inclusion, we talk about race, race and ethnicity, we don't often talk about shadism, which is, that's the dark part of um, racism that none of us want to address, which is colonialism left a stain that we're still dealing with. The darker you are in whatever, whatever ethnicity you're in is the more barriers, the more struggle, the more challenges, the, um, the more unbiased racism is against you. And the lighter and fairer you are, I was telling someone I was watching, because uh, I watch a lot of TV and film, um, and I was watching a Korean series on Netflix. I won't say what, because they're all the same, but it was really fun. Um, and a girl in it says to this guy, because she likes him, but he's, he's, she's, you know, she thinks he doesn't like her. She says, you're not my type anywhere way. I like my men fair. And this is Korea now. It's a, it's a current series. And what she's really saying, and by the way, he looks like every other Korean person, right. but just the shade of him being slightly darker is something that is brought up in a, in a 2020 series. So this is still very much an issue and a problem um, that we still have to deal with in Canada. You're listening to my interview with Real World Film Festival founder, Tanya Williams. You started acting early. You were a teenager. Uh, the industry uh, was uh, established here, but mm -hmm. established, well, as we've just been discussing, there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of representation for people no. who weren't uh, other than white uh, on television and certainly in commercials and that kind of thing. What struggles did you find? My parents raised me a very specific way. They raised me for the world that they knew I was going to have to navigate in. So my father and my mother both would say, the world is completely unfair. Like that's, that wasn't, they didn't say it in a way that I should feel sorry for myself. It's like, deal with it. This the is world a fact. Is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to hire you. Nobody wants to give you an opportunity. And yet you, you must find your success through that. And so every obstacle I was prepared for. So I wasn't shocked by any of it. I assumed people were racist. <laughs> I assumed they didn't want to hire me. And I was able to... I think um, information is what is the most powerful thing. And once you have that information, then you navigate around people and you navigate around their racism. I tended to diffuse it. Some people used humor. I diffused it by bringing it up, by talking about it. Um, it was the elephant in the room and I would be the first person to say something about it so that people understood that I, and I didn't say it in a defensive way. I would sometimes bring up a question like, do you think right now this is an appropriate thing that maybe someone black might say? Is this something that you think would happen if it were a, a black person within this environment? So um, I've always been very comfortable talking about race. And I think um, I remember what happened to me. I was in school and they were teasing me. I was probably about, you know, five or six. And I remember crying coming home and some kid had been saying like black, 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 you know, like it's so funny now, but he was probably just saying that black, black, black. <laughs> and of course all the kids were laughing and I was crying and I came home 
And my mother was so gentle and beautiful. She said, but you are black. And just her recognition in that moment made me realize that the word itself was not the insult. It was really how he was saying it. Right. So when he did it to me the very next day, I felt very different. I went, yes, in a way like, you know, and yeah. <laughs> like, what, what else you got? You know, it's yeah, what's like, your point? Yeah. You're just, you know, you're admitting an obvious, I get it. And he was, he was embarrassed uh, by that. And so I used um, that kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, but <laughs> I, I was also, I grew up in, in England. So sarcasm and wit, right. you know, is kind of uh, a given when you're, when you're growing up there. So I learned very quickly to turn things around on people, to be more sarcastic um, so that, the people who would have laughed at me ended up laughing at the person who said the thing. And even the person saying it sometimes ended up laughing because <laughs> they realized how silly it was. Now, by 1987, you were told that you were booking, and this is a, a quote, all the available jobs in Canada. And you were still having trouble paying your bills, though. Did you ever think about quitting? Did you ever think about saying, you know, maybe this, my dream isn't going to come true here? No, and I, uh, it's so hard now that you say that, that, that would have been a, a thing that I should have thought, <laughs> but, but, but really my mind went to, oh, am I actually booking everything here? Mm. So I need to think about where else I need to go. And of course, going to the U.S. is always on the mind, I think, of most actors. From the, from the moment you start, you're thinking about, no matter where you are in the world, you're thinking about eventually how you would be in Hollywood, how you, you might get there. So I think it just moved that along faster. I think it was the kick in the pants that I needed when someone said that and I sort of, I think I hadn't noticed. <laughs> I noticed mm -hmm. I was broke and I noticed I wasn't getting paid that much. But I figured, oh, I'll just get more work. And I'll just, my mind was thinking that way. But when someone said that, I thought, oh, there is no more work to get if I'm getting it all. So that was the beginning of, well, there's a co combination of things. Um, the, the immigration, the, the, the way to get your visas changed right at that moment. And there was an opportunity for me to get my work visa for the state. So I'm, I'm a big believer in timing and and you've got to be in the loop and you've got to be aggressive about how you want to shape your career. And so I took that chance and I, my, my visa got approved. And so I end up in Los Angeles in 1987, right at the moment that the Cosby show was such a huge hit. They were, they were about to, they were talking about the spinoff of a different world. I mean, it, I literally arrived at a moment where agents were hunting for black people because the door was just cracking open in a, in a big way. My guest via Zoom from her home in Los Angeles is Tanya Williams. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the film festival that she created, the Real World Film Festival. In this world, plagued by the pandemic, that festival, like every other festival the world over, has moved online. If you need to know more details, go to realworld.ca. There you can find out all about the films, animation, the shorts, the music videos, the industry panels, and the awards that they'll hand out during this festival season from October 14th to 19th. She is telling the story one step at a time leading up to the events that caused her to create the film festival. Right now, it's 1987. She's moving to Los Angeles, about to get a job on The Young and the Restless. Here's Tanya Williams. You played Dr. Olivia Barber Hastings on The Young and the Restless. 
Uh, that is the big time. But your experience there was, uh, I don't know, I guess not rocky, but I, I've been reading about how they didn't have someone who could do your hair. They didn't have uh, people that were used to dealing and working uh, with black people. Right. But Richard, you have to go back and think, I never had that. That was the norm everywhere I went. So when I got there, when we say it's rocky, we mean that the black actors actually got together and said, we demand this. Right. Um, but none of us as black actors had ever had it. So it wasn't like we'd had it before and then we were saying, oh, we're so shocked that this isn't happening. Right. No, when you think of all the work I'd done up to that point, I was doing my own hair. I was doing my own makeup. I was doing we just got tired of it. We were now on a successful show and they were, it wasn't just one of us. Remember, I'm always the only one. So of course you feel embarrassed to go and ask for a hair person and a makeup person. Now we were a group of people that were considered a family and we very quickly became the most famous family. Um, beyond daytime TV, we were the most famous black family on television, you know, beyond the Cosby show, I mean, but, um, and so there were, you know, three or four actresses. There were three or four actors. We're all black. We're a part of this family. And we, we now thought we need to get attention. You know, there is no reason why, you know, I, I think people don't even think white actors, especially actresses, they get up, they roll out of bed, they maybe jump in the shower, their hair is damp. They jump in the car, they get to the studio. Everybody fixes them. When you're black, you get up an hour and a half earlier you do the same things, but you have to blow dry your own hair. You have to curl your own hair. You have to buy and make sure you bring all the makeup that matches your skin color. You have to, because I've arrived on sets, not just YNR, when the makeup artist is like, well, I don't have a base for you. Like, it's my job to bring the base. Right. You know, they're right. like, oh, I don't have the right kind of hot comb or the, or, the, or the curling iron for your hair. But they really say it in a way like, what do you want me to do? Like, yeah, yeah. It's not something that they feel they need to solve. And I mean, it's better now, but I'm saying back then, I knew it was my responsibility to come with all those things. I couldn't come with just my talent as an actor. I had to come prepared as a talented hair and makeup person and everything else too. And sometimes have to talk to lighting people on the set because they're looking to light all the white people and you look at the playback and you can't even be seen. You have to actually help lighting people in how they would light black skin. So. These are lots of things that people don't think about, but they're, they wear you down, you know? And I can tell you, I loved my time on YNR, and, but when I was ready to walk away from that job, it wasn't just about the acting. It was just the exhaustion that a lot of black actors, and we sit and talk about it with each other. Sometimes you're just weary mm -hmm. of the push, that pushing the boulder constantly up a hill um, that makes you just go, you reach a certain age and you're like, oh, I'm too old for this. You know, I'm too old to just, cause I'm ready to snap. You know, you're too old to hear these same excuses you've been hearing for 40 years. You're like, it's just tiresome. You're listening to my interview with Tanya Williams, founder of the Real World Film Festival. Well, I'm guessing that it is that lived experience that led you to create the Real World Film Festival. But in the early days of this festival, you say that white reporters didn't understand the necessity of a festival that was trying to, to literally change the face of the industry. What kind of response did you get early on from people reporting on the real world festival? 
it was so i think thinking back on it now it's almost so funny because it's only 20 years ago mm-hmm. but not just reporters government funders in particular they were like why do we need something like this like we're fine we don't have that kind of racism in canada we don't have they were very defensive about it and i would say what, what's funny is you only had to turn on the tv to get your answer you only had to go to the movie theaters i was like it, it was almost like I, I felt that they were saying I was just stirring up trouble. We were fine in Canada and I was just being a troublemaker. But I had to just ignore that. As I, as I said, um, dealing with that kind of, and I, I use the word ignorance not in a negative way, but mm-hmm. ignorance meaning just the lack of knowledge, just yep. the knack of awareness. Um, dealing with that had been my whole life. So I just moved forward. I knew exactly, because I'd lived it. So I knew what the issues were. I knew what the problems were. And I always know the first step to solving things is there needs to be like a realization that it exists. Um, You can't start fixing a problem when you don't even think there's a problem. Um, I remember the first grants we turned in, I got the same comment from all the different grants people. We were using the word racial diversity. You'd think I'd used the N word. I mean, it was, they were like, you cannot, you have to change this word racial diversity. You have to change this to cultural diversity. And I had to literally take them through a learning curve of cultural diversity and racial diversity are not the same thing. And real world is not a culturally diverse festival. That's not what our aim is. We were racially diverse. There are issues and problems with race in Canada. Our festival is about bringing Canadian filmmakers who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color to the forefront so that they have a place where they feel welcomed, where they can build their confidence, a platform where the rest of Canada can come and see them and recognize the amazing talent. Because that talent, to that point, was just thinking about going south of the border. That talent was no longer, I mean, I understood in 1987 I might have wanted to do that, But in the late 1990s, I was still hearing people going, Tanya, who's a good immigration lawyer? You know, what's a great agent in Los Angeles? How can I get there? They were not even thinking about staying in Canada at all. We'd had so many conversations, Canadians and documentaries about the the brain drain in Canada. I was like, nobody seems to be noticing this. The brain drain is a lot of this racial diversity that's doing so well when they cross the border. So that was really a driving force. And because I love film festivals, let's, let's go. I just love them. <laughs> I have, I boast that I had been going to Toronto International Film Festival before I knew it was the Toronto International <laughs> Film Festival. You meet the most amazing people at film festivals. You're not just, it's not just there to watch the films, which is great, but to hear the actual filmmakers and all the creators around that project from concept to the end of it, to, to talk to other audience members who love it. You, you meet crew people, you meet casting directors. I mean, you just meet everybody. Um, and so when I thought of what could I do, what is the thing I could actually create that could help? Film Festival was the first thing that came to my mind because it just touches every level of the industry. Um, but I have to say, you know, we, we, we stuck to our guns. We used the wording we want to use. We, we kept moving forward. And people slowly started to get it. This year, the festival had to change because of the pandemic. The entire festival is online. There's live webinars from October 14th to the 19th. Uh, How can people access the films and webinars? Well, first of all, all the films are, are, I mean, what is screening, all the programming is now up on the website, realworld.ca. 
and then you click and you buy a pass. We made it so simple this year. We didn't even do individual tickets. You just buy a pass like when you, you know, buy Netflix or Crave or any, like you yep. just buy a pass. Um, and then we have the schedule of suggested times, but we also have um, that you can watch it anytime you want. <laughs> so it's kind of video on demand for those six days. Um, but very different, you know, very different to think in a digital way than think in the on-site way that we're normally thinking and trying to move everything on that platform. Um, what's great is a lot of festivals in Toronto have, have gathered together. I'm with, I'm actually with five other festivals that we talk all the time. It's Inside Out, it's Regent Park, it's Real Asian, it's Imaginative, and it's Planet and Focus. Um, all the EDs from those and myself, we've been meeting every Wednesday for an hour and it's been a godsend. We've been doing that for almost three months now. Mm. While we shaped our festivals, we were learning from each other and sharing resources um, because it's just so different. It, it is different. One of the things that I have enjoyed about the online festivals that uh, in most recently, the Toronto International Film Festival, it being online uh, is that the focus for me is now laser focused on the stories, on the movies. Um, often, if I'm covering or if I'm reading about it, I can flip through the newspaper and not see a movie review, not see a story about a movie. I'll just hear about George Clooney walking down a red carpet or something right, like right. that. And that's a huge part of the festival, and I understand that. But I really like that this year the focus was on the movies. Yeah, that, now that's you're, all you're, there was. Yeah, now you're like me. Because we're in the industry and because we love the industry, of course, we try to weed through all that other fluff <laughs> to just mm -hmm. try and get to the heart. But of course, that's, that thing we call fluff is what the audience loves. You know, the general audience, they missed out on the George Clooney on the red carpet. That's right. um, I just watched uh, part of the Emmys last night, and it was really interesting to see how they tried to give the, the, the fans and the audience, which we, we always... Um, want to keep cultivating because mm -hmm. they're the they're the heart and soul of what, why we do all the things that we do. But you're right from an industry perspective. I'm also loving it because I am getting right to not having to. Uh, first of all, I don't have to walk from place to place. <laughs> I just <laughs> right. click. Stand in line. I'm already forever. lazy. Yeah, <laughs> I just click from place to place um, and just getting the greatest information mm -hmm. um, in a very pinpointed way. And because things are digital, it has a more linear feel to it. So you're not sort of oh, I've got 10 things I have to choose one of to get to. Um, now I get to go to all 10 things because they're laid out you know, you know, nicely. So I, I do like the pace. Um, I think the one thing I'm sad about, not so much for myself, because honestly, Richard, at 62, my networking days are, I'm tired. I've, got, I've met all the people I ever want to meet. I don't even <laughs> want to meet any more new people. But for, for young filmmakers, that opportunity that I loved of when you're just sitting in the line and the people you would talk to in the lineup or in the, cause you, you know, sit, you sit in some random seat in the theater and start talking to whoever um, those kind of connections. I still have many of those connections that I made mm -hmm. 40 years ago um, to this day. And I think, I think we're still all trying to figure out how do we make that happen in a digital world. You're listening to my interview with Tanya Williams, founder of the real world film festival. What have you learned over the last 20 years of the festival? Wow. I think the biggest thing, I've learned a lot. Um, I would say the first things I learned starting is I did not re realize that there was so little racial diversity 
forget the filmmakers now, in the arts administrative world. Mm -hmm. So real world became, we didn't want to, but we became the training ground of programmers, which are curators for some people, um, of arts admin people, people writing grants. These people have gone on now to work at other film festivals. So that's a part. Um, but I would say something shocking is the minute we started using words like just diversity and even racial diversity and lumping everybody together is the minute I noticed that the black community in particular started to struggle more and be and and diminish in the amount of content the amount of projects and the amount of access to funding they had and so now that it's 2020 and and what has just happened you know the explosion of anti-black racism um, and our awareness of it is that I realized we can't even use those bucket phrases anymore. We can't use those phrases, just racial diversity. We can't use that term, just BIPOC, because mentally it creates a single hire. Um, and the single hire is almost never black person. The single hire is still that dirty word that we, that shadism. People are more comfortable hiring people in the shade that is closest to them. So Asian, South Asians, Middle Eastern, and Latin American Canadians are kind of in a similar bucket in how people hire them. Indigenous people are completely separate and still struggle. And black people now have to be pulled out of that. And so when I use, I won't use the word BIPOC because I feel it's harmful in our mental thinking about how we need to hire. And I at least lay out black, indigenous and people of color. Saying those words remind us we have to hire black people um, that I was really quite shocked. It got to the point where three years ago, we couldn't find a black Canadian film in Canada by a Canadian. Like we had lots of options of Canadian Asian films, of Canadian South Asian films, of Canadian Middle Eastern films, and we could not find a black film. And this year we found some, but I mean, we really had to hunt for them. And almost many of them are under the budgets of $50,000 because they say they don't have access because once you make the access for everybody, it's almost like black people have the most struggle accessing that. So in the data that we're always talking about that we need to collect, we're going to have to break that up. We need to break it up by ethnicity so we can see who is struggling, who needs more help. You can't just use the word, you know, racial diversity now. And I started that phrase, but now I see, <laughs> now I see that we need to break it down even more and help those ethnic groups that are struggling more we may not be aware of it because we're not collecting the data in a way that shows this to us in this segment we talk about the new rules at the academy i was interested to see what she had to say about them as a founder of a film festival that is interested in increasing awareness of marginalized people in front of and behind the camera as an actor and as someone who lives in hollywood you you live in los angeles do you think that the new rules that the Academy has uh, brought in, in terms of films that can be nominated for best picture, and there is sort of a four stage uh, plan that they have. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, and, and I'll use the word diversity because I think that's the word that they use, but do you think that those will be effective? They don't come in uh, to play for a couple of years yet, but right. I, when I read them, I thought, People are, some people are complaining online about it. That I guess is probably to be expected. There's always, 
you know, everything is divisive now. So, uh, so, you know, people are going to complain. But I think that if you go um, three years after that, you won't even notice it. It'll just be the way it is. And I think that's a step forward, but I'd like to get your take on that. Yeah, I am completely for it. I am 100% for it. Um, It's always going to be a struggle. Um, I totally, you know what? It's sad. I'm a black person. I understand the struggle of how it must be right now to be white in our industry. It feels like it's unfair. That's how it feels when you're a white person right now. It feels like you're being pushed out. It feels like you're not getting, and you you know what? You're right. But you also have to remember for a hundred years, it was always skewed to you. So it can't just be when we say level the playing field, level the playing field doesn't mean it's equal for everybody. Right now we have to make it more advantageous for people who for a hundred years, you have shut the door on a hundred percent. Once they have reached a certain level, then you can start thinking about leveling the playing field. But that's, that's what leveling the playing field is. It's like the scale was so tipped that, you know, creating it level now requires a group of people, and mostly that's white people right now in the industry, to feel that it's unfair for them. But they, didn't, they weren't complaining that it was unfair when, you know, 10 films are nominated and they're all white directors and they're all white cast and they're all white. They were comfortable then. <laughs> So the uncomfortability that white people might be feeling right now is the uncomfortability that black indigenous and people of color have felt since they were born, that that hasn't changed. No one talks about the fact that, you know, two, 300 years slavery, by the way, slavery was in Canada. People bought slaves. Slaves were brought in ships and people bought them. And our history does not teach that. I think it was Doug Ford said in a speech just this year that, Oh, how fortunate Canada was that we didn't have slavery like they have in the U.S. I don't know what he's talking about. We had the same slavery. It was in existence. But imagine if you and I, Richard, could have free labor (laughs) for not only our lifetime, but your children's lifetime, your grandchildren's lifetime, your great-grandchildren. That advantage, which was not that long ago, has built the wealth of white Canada, in fact, of the white world in many places. And at some point, Maybe it wasn't you, person who's now 28 years old. Maybe you directly didn't do it, but you benefited from 400 years of this. And, and now we're trying to level that. So it's going to seem unfair for a bit. Um, I say this also about award shows. You know, when I look at the Canada Walk of Fame, I better see Black, Indigenous, and people of color there. When I look at the Governor General Awards, when I look at the Order of Canada, and a lot of times when I sit on those juries, I hear the same sad excuses I normally hear. Well, this person hasn't done as much or this person hasn't had this many, as many years. I go, if you're going to judge on the fact of years and um, amount of work, when you know these people were not allowed work and were not allowed, like you'll never see anybody then on those um, awards. So criteria needs to be changed with the understanding that a, several groups of ethnic people were denied access and now they must be given access, but it can't be just on the same equal footing or they still will never um, succeed or move forward. You're listening to my interview with Tanya Williams, founder of the Real World Film Festival. We have to at least mention Access Real World. Absolutely, (laughs) tell me about it. So Access Real World is the database that Real World launched this July 6th. And the database is now, we can boast the largest North America database for black 
indigenous and people of color in the screen-based industry, in the creatives industry. And we encourage people to go to accessrealworld.ca and sign up because everybody has been talking about inclusion and diversity for more than 40 years of my career. And the only way you are going to be able to include people and to get, give access to people is if you know where they are. And so it's the responsibility, I believe, for every racially diverse person in the industry to get on the database so that there is no more excuses. We want production companies and broadcasters to go and be able to say, I was able to post a job, I was able to find talent, because they want to know where you are. I mean, people really are, more than ever, 2020 was the, I would say, the tipping point of broadcasters and production companies saying, we want to hire more black people. We want to hire more indigenous people. But where are they, Tanya? You know, I get that all the time. So definitely I wanted to end on that note <laughs> for them to go there. Yeah, I've, I've got it in my notes here. Um, uh, now the largest national database for Canadian black indigenous people of color in the creative industries. That's an incredible achievement. Yeah, you know, I've wanted to do that. You can imagine when I started the festival back in 2001, I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. But the technology was so expensive. I couldn't get any funding for it. Um, so now this is the wonderful thing about technology. I mean, it changes every, what, 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> so now it was so affordable that we uh, started to work on this uh, in 2019. And uh, 2020, we were excited to be able to launch it. And we hope it really now changes uh, we were getting a lot of emails from people that would just say, Tanya, can you help us? We're looking for a cinematographer. Mm. I'm like, it's, it's work for me to like comb through our database. Um, so now I just point them to, to access real world. Go look for them there. <laughs> it was a pleasure to speak to Tanya Williams via Zoom from her home in Los Angeles. Check out the Real World Film Festival at realworld.ca. Now I'm going to give you just a little taste of an interview that will air next week. Evolving Vegan is part cookbook, part travel guide, and it focuses on plant-based home-cooked meals and explores what it means to eat vegan. It's available right now wherever you buy fine books. Mina Mossad, who recently starred in Disney's 2019 live-action film Aladdin, chronicles his experiences and discoveries from his recent road trip across North America in the book Evolving Vegan. We started this interview by setting the table, so to speak. Five years ago, he made his mother cry at the dinner table when he told her that he was thinking of becoming vegan. I asked him if he expected that reaction. Uh, you know, I've surprised my parents a lot. Uh, I told them I was going to be an actor. I told them I was going to move away from home. Uh, all things they weren't used to. Uh, so I'm not really sure what I expected, but I, uh, I didn't expect for her to not make me anything for dinner. Uh, I think she thought I was going to crack under the pressure and end up eating her food anyway, but, uh, but I held my ground. Now, you grew up eating pretty much everything you've said, uh, and you say that meat tastes good. How do you feel about that now that you are five years removed? Yeah, I mean, meat tastes good. Uh, that's why we eat it. Uh, mm. That's why it's, it's hard to give up because it tastes good. Uh, that's, that's the whole point of uh, evolving vegan and going more plant-based. Uh, you know, if it was... If it was easy and meat didn't taste good, then everybody would be vegan already. You're listening to my interview with Aladdin star Mina Massad. He's also the author of Evolving Vegan in bookstores now. And you say that your journey on this uh, particular subject, on veganism, began out of resentment and denial. 
Was that the motivation for writing the book? No. When I said that, I think what I meant was, um, you know, I had had people tell me before in my life to go vegan and um, like any meat eater, I was angry at them and always argued with them about how ridiculous that idea was. Um, but I, I end up coming to it on my own, you know, years later, months later. Um, I think veganism and, and plant-based living is something that you have to be convinced of yourself. You have to come to it on your own. Nobody can, can convince you to do it. Otherwise, you're never going to stick uh, stick to it. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, debates back and forth about people who go vegan right away. They tend to revert back to the way they used to eat uh, more quickly than people who do it slowly and, and come to it slowly, which is the whole idea and premise behind Evolving Vegan. Well, the transition is difficult for people. So how exactly did you do it? Was it a step-by-step process where you start by saying, all right, I'm not going to eat eggs anymore. And then the next week you let something else go and, and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, it might not be a week. You know, it might take you a month. Mm-hmm. But I did give up red meat first. Uh, red meat obviously has the biggest environmental impact on our planet um, than any of the other animal products. So I gave up red meat first. Um, and I think then I gave up eggs and chicken, mm-hmm. uh, might have not been in that order, but, uh, eggs was definitely one of the first to go just because of the amount of hormones, uh, that are naturally in an egg. You know, you need hormones to, to make a baby chicken into a big chicken. So there's naturally a lot of hormones in eggs. Um, so yeah, I did it slowly. And the more that I cut things out, the better I started to feel, the more energy I had, Um, I was making more progress at the gym than I ever had before. And so it it just worked for me and and my lifestyle. And um, it's been easy ever since. That was Mina Massad. You can find his new book, Evolving Vegan, wherever you buy fine books. We'll have more with him in the weeks to come. My thanks to Tanya Williams, founder of the Real World Film Festival. My thanks to Mina Massad. Most of all, though, and as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Take care of yourself, stay healthy, stay happy, and we'll talk again soon.